Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is the New Books Network, and I'm Ian Drake of Montclair State University. We are joined today by Dr. Richard Haas. He's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, an experienced diplomat and policymaker. He served as the senior Middle East advisor to President George H.W. Bush as director of the policy planning staff under Secretary of State Colin Powell and as the U.S. envoy to both the Cyprus and Northern Ireland peace talks. He is a recipient of the Presidential Citizens Medal, the State Department's Distinguished Honor Award, and the Tipperary International Peace Award. He is also the author or editor of 14 other books, including the best-selling A World in Disarray. He joins us today to discuss his latest work, The World, A Brief Introduction. Dr. Haas, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. So every book has a story of the motive to write it. And in your preface, you begin by discussing a fishing trip to Nantucket. Can you explain what happened and why that uh, prompted this book? Sure. But in full disclosure, I should make it clear that I am not a serious fisherman. But yes, that day uh, I was going fishing in Nantucket and there was a the nephew of one of my closest friends and he was about 20, 21 years old. And I asked him where he went to school, and he said Stanford. He was about to enter his senior year. And I said, uh, what are you majoring in? And he said, computer sciences. And I said, great. And I said, look, I'm just curious. Uh, when you're not studying computer sciences, how many history courses have you had? And he said, actually, I haven't had any. And I said, oh, that's curious. And I said, what about economics? And he said, yeah, sorry, again, I haven't had any. And we kept going through the arts and sciences curriculum. And what it became, what became clear is this incredibly personable, bright young man was going to graduate from one of the best universities in the world. and was going to have precious little background outside of his ability to, to code and to do things on, on computers. And when I got back to my office in New York, uh, I had people look at uh, America's colleges and universities, two year, four year, and it turned out that while on virtually every campus in the United States, courses about international relations, foreign policy were offered, 
on virtually no campus, very, very few, was such courses required for graduation. And the clever student could navigate his or her graduation requirements in and out of their major and essentially graduate without any familiarity or experience with basic questions of how the world works, why it matters, what are the principal debates about foreign policy, what are America's interests in the world, what's the, what's the critical history that one might want to, uh, to know. And it was because of that understanding I came away saying, this is really wrong. Uh, we have got to do something about this. And my, I asked you know, at the Council of Foreign Relations, we launched an entire educational initiative to try to help Americans in high schools, colleges for the rest of their lives become more knowledgeable about the, uh, the world. And then I decided to take on the task of writing a, a book for non-experts that in one volume, accessible, would give people what I thought they should have under their belts when they were going to leave campuses or simply come of age so they could be a, a better informed citizen, so they would be better prepared to vote and hold candidates or elected representatives to account. They'd be better able to make career decisions. Should I go into the military, the intelligence, business decisions, investment decisions, travel decisions? Essentially, what I wanted to do was in, in one volume, give people what I thought was the essential foundation they need to live a 21st century life. So that's a sad commentary on modern education, uh, perhaps. Uh, I definitely get the sense that uh, you wish that the college curriculum uh, and including the high school curriculum would uh, mandate a much more uh, rigid education, at least in the sense of uh, less choice among the rather obscure uh, topics that you can take a course in and still graduate with a BA. I'm in violent agreement with what you just said. And I'd, I'd probably say in a few areas, I mean, yes, we need to teach people basic skills. And I understand that critical thinking, writing, speaking, teamwork and collaboration, basic math skills. Uh, that's one That's one thing. But I'd also say in a society like the United States, we need to do two other things. One is we need to teach people what my generation was called civics. I want people to read the Constitution, to read the Federalist Papers, to read de Tocqueville, to read some Supreme Court decisions. I want to pass on the political DNA of our country because I'll be honest with you, I don't take it for granted that it gets passed on. And indeed, when I look at some of what goes on in this country nowadays, at our political dysfunction, where compromise has become a dirty word in many quarters, uh, that to me is evidence we're not doing enough to teach our, our, our civics. And then secondly, I want to make sure that people are ready for a 21st century world that, like it or not, is going to shape their lives. Here we are having this conversation amidst a pandemic. And if anybody needed a powerful example of why the world matters and how it can affect everything from our physical lives to our financial lives to the essence of our future, we've got it. And again, I wanted to make sure, and I think it's important, that people coming out of schools have the necessary background to make informed uh, decisions. And right now, at least, what concerns me, this is we don't. And that I believe, that I believe uh, you know, I'm an old-fashioned believer in core curriculums that Part of what every, as I say, a future employer, I'd, I would want to know that every graduate was armed with certain skills or certain knowledge. And I think we as a society ought to want that every citizen is familiar with the basics of American democracy, 
and every citizen is familiar with some of the basics of how the world works and why it matters. Let's turn to your stab at um, creating a, a background for international civics. You've given a um, history that you describe as the essential history, and you start with the end of the Thirty Years' War, which is, uh, in terms of understanding the history of international relations, it's one of the starting points. And can you explain briefly why you think that that's a good place to understand the world in 2020, uh, going all the way back to uh, early 17th century? Yeah, the reason I began in the mid-17th century is that was essentially the formation of the, the modern international system where before that you had principalities, kingdoms, uh, and the like. And here you had the rise of the, the modern state system uh, or countries. And I thought that was as good a place uh, as any to, to begin the story, because here we are now, centuries later, and we still have an international system that is largely, not exclusively, but largely uh, dominated by what are, what are called sovereign states, entities that have... Uh, a tremendous authority over what goes on with, uh, within their borders and are the most powerful, if you want to use the cliche, pieces on the chessboard. And that's really the, the starting point. of. Uh, there could have been other starting points. In the course of what I write, I talk about other critical transitions or, or, or moments, but I thought that was a, probably the single best starting point to explain how we got to where we are today. All right. So in understanding what's often referred to as the Westphalian system, this is named after the town in which the end of the Thirty Years' War was uh, finally officially agreed to in 1648, uh, a horribly destructive war in European history and probably the most destructive really until the mid-19th century, of course, World War I. Um, So in understanding what sovereignty means and what the nation state means, what is it that you want the reader uh, to understand in terms of what is the nation state and what does that mean in terms of what is comes after 1648 versus what exists before it? It's a, it's a, it's a critical question. Uh, the importance of the nation state is that it's, it's built on this idea of sovereignty, that these are the units that have standing in the, in the world and within their borders, they are pretty much free to do as they will. Uh, people who live within their borders have loyalties and obligations to that state. And what's so important in the international sense is that states essentially make a bargain with one another. It's a little bit of a live and let live bargain. You don't come here within our borders and we won't go to you and do things bad to you inside of your borders. So this, uh, this was the beginning of uh, an understanding of, of rules about international relations. So you don't you don't change borders by force. You don't constantly intervene or interfere inside uh, another piece of, of territory. And it may not sound like much, but think about how much history is about when this basic principle was violated. World War One, World War Two. Now, say uh, r- what Russia is doing in, in Ukraine. So the the observation of this one principle. Uh, I would say more than any other single principle, at least gives us the basics of peace. It's not perfect. It doesn't give us democracy. It doesn't protect uh, civil uh, protect from civil wars, wars uh, within states. It doesn't stop genocide. It doesn't stop climate change. But as a single basis for promoting peace, 
I'm hard pressed to think of any other principle, if observed, that would at least establish a, a foundation of stability. Well, that's kind of the kickerism because I'd like to provoke you with this question. So you, the, the phrase that I picked up on and what you just said is if observed. And so peace is, as you rightly know, different from stability. And so has the Westphalian system been a system that really is observed or is it one that is honored sometimes more in the breach? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> it is observed. Uh, not always, though. Uh, again, uh, you had the most recent dramatic uh, breach of it was what Russia did in Ukraine several years ago, the seizure of the Crimea area. 30 years ago, you had Saddam Hussein invade his neighbor Kuwait and take Kuwaiti territory and absorb it into uh, Iraq. It took the United States leading an international coalition to bring an end to that. World War II, obviously, you had German and Japanese violations of the basic protections and principles of sovereignty. World War I was another example. So there's, there's many examples, and the, the most violent parts of history are essentially the story of when this principle wasn't observed. But that also shows two things. It shows how important this principle is. And secondly, there have been periods of history where it has been largely observed. If you look, say, uh, what's so interesting about the Cold War, the struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union for four decades, from the end of World War II to, say, roughly 1989, 1990, here you had great power rivalry. But unlike previous great power rivalries, which did end up in two world wars, this one this one did not. You had a... Uh, you had a, may have been reluctant at time on the part of the Soviet Union, but all the same, you had a general respect for, for, for sovereignty and the limits or the risks of using military force to, to alter borders. So again, I'm not saying this is perfect. I'm not saying it's sufficient. But again, it's a pretty good place to, to, to start. And when it isn't observed, as you suggest, we're much worse off for it. Another point you make is that there's no such thing as a Vegas rule when it comes to the world and world affairs. What, what do you mean by that other than advertising for uh, the Las Vegas Convention Bureau? <laughs> well, years ago, can't remember how many, there was a commercial done by the Las Vegas Tourist or Convention Bureau, which had uh, some people, I'd say in their 20s or 30s, give or take, uh, in Las Vegas. And clearly they had been up to mischief. Well, it was never quite clear what the mischief was. But it, was, it could have been simply financial. It could have been personal. That was, that was just hinted at. But the, the, the tagline at the end was, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Essentially, come here, be bad, go back home, and no one will be the wiser for it. And without uh, you know, offering opinions on the uh, correctness of that point of view, my view is simply that principle does not apply to the world. Essentially, what starts or happens anywhere one shouldn't think stays there, but rather because of globalization, it travels. I mean, we are living through a powerful example of it. What started in Wuhan, China, clearly did not stay there. It spread throughout China, and now it has spread throughout the world, causing trillions of dollars of loss and uh, more than 100,000 uh, deaths. Climate change is another example of things which happen locally. This or that uh, emissions from a coal plant or from automobiles, it cumulatively adds up to, to climate change. 
you had terrorists uh, operating, you know, trained out of Afghanistan, and then get on airplanes armed with box cutters in the United States, and suddenly 3,000 people are, are dead. And this, to me, is the reality of, of modern life, that little stays local for long. There isn't the equivalent of a geopolitical or modern La, Las Vegas to the, uh, the opposite. Not, the word local has essentially lost a lot of its uh, meaning. And going back to the conversation we began with, that's what's so interesting about this period of history. You still have the old-fashioned, familiar geopolitical jockeying and rivalries between and among major powers. Now it's the United States and China, the United States and Russia, what have you. But on top of that, you have this whole overlay of issues associated with, with globaliz globalization, and whether it's pandemics or terror or, or climate change, digital uh, action, what have you. And that's what makes this, this moment of international history both unique, but also uh, incredibly turbulent and in some ways incredibly dangerous. Also, it seems to me that implicit within this Vegas rule concept is the rejection of a particular view of the world, which is an isolationist view. In other words, the isolationists often argue that there effectively is a Vegas rule. What happens in China stays in China or uh, in a, some other remote, seemingly remote part of the globe. But it seems to me that you're essentially making an implicit argument at some points explicitly, um, which is that you can't simply be an isolationist and have... Um, uh, a, a peaceful backyard. Absolutely. Uh, the analogy that comes to mind, ostrich putting his head in the sand on the beach, and that may be comforting, but only temporarily, because sooner or later the tide's going to come in and you're going to be washed away. And that seems to me the danger of isolationism. We can run, but we cannot hide. So we can ignore, or we can try to ignore what goes on in the world. But again, uh, look at the price we're paying for having ignored health outbreaks and outcomes in in china look at the price we are paying and will pay over time for for climate change look at the you know i can go around the world and choose any number of other issues but i think it's a reality uh or globalization is a reality now we can debate how best to respond to it and that's a legitimate and necessary set of debates what should we do to try to prevent certain types of problems? What should we do to protect ourselves? What should we do to make ourselves more resilient? That's exactly the sort of public conversation we ought to be having. But to deny or ignore the reality of globalization, that seems to me to put us in, in great peril. The way you've arranged the book is, in addition to the historical section, you also discuss different regions of the world and each of these, uh, we might, uh, people might disagree about whether one country is in one region or another or uh, how compact they are. But those uh, small disagreements aside, it seems to me that um, you've got a infrastructure in the world today that is truly, in other words, we can dis discuss these different regions, but ultimately they truly are globalized today. Uh, you mentioned the pandemic and how quickly it spreads. Uh, but all of the issues that you address, um, globalization is less of a concept than a, a reality of the infrastructure in the modern world. Is that right? It is right. The only slight caveat I'd give is look, globalization is a reality that respects no artificial lines on maps, this or that region, this or that national border. 
that's all true. What though I think is still true is that regions matter. That's the dynamics between and among neighbors is often at a, carried out at a level of intensity in part because there's less distance. Uh, when refugees move, they move across borders. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a regional uh, phenomenon. When wars start, they're often started locally because many countries don't have the ability to go to war halfway around the world, but they do have the ability to go to war uh, locally. So uh, in terms of trade, it makes more sense often for goods and services to go, to go locally. So my point is simply that, yes, we live in a global world, but uh, I think it's wrong to ignore the intensity and the relevance often of, of regional interactions. Geography and distance still count, even in a global world. You spend a great deal of uh, the book discussing the context of the modern, uh, the contemporary environment in which we live today in 2020. But you do so in using terms from the 20th century, i.e. it's a post-Cold War world versus a Cold War world. And so what I want to do is use that framework of the Cold War to discuss this concept. I referred to it uh, obliquely earlier, the difference between stability versus peace. And so can you expand upon the, the, the divergence between these two concepts? Stability, stability and peace. I understand. Uh, yeah, you're, well, first of all, your framing is right. You know, here we are, we're roughly 30 years after the end of the, the Cold War. And what's so interesting about this period of history is it's yet to settle. Uh, we call it the post-Cold War world in part because it doesn't yet have a clear personality or, or, or character of its own. And we'll see where history uh, takes us. And one day we will not call this the post-Cold War world. This period of history will have a, will have a name. It could be something quite positive. It could be something quite negative. Uh, could be for... All sorts of ways, depending upon how we tackle global issues, how the U.S.-Chinese relationship works out and so forth. So, you know, we're living in history now. So I'd say that just as a framing thing, peace and stability are uh, often used interchangeably. But I I think there are some significant uh, differences. And in in, in certain ways, you can have peace without stability. In some cases, you can have stability without uh, peace. Uh, stability suggests to me uh, not not that things are necessarily locked into place. So that's one form of stability, but that's a brittle form of stability. Stability also can be dynamic, that you have agreement about what kinds of changes are permitted and how they are to be to, to be carried out. So, for example, after World War II, you had the emergence of all these new countries, which previously had been uh, colonies. That was, you know, that was uh, stable, but it wasn't settled. It was very dynamic. Peace is the acceptance in many ways of, uh, of change. And peace derives uh, from consent, or if not consent, the inability to do something, to do something much uh, about it. So again, uh, you know, I want a world that's uh, peaceful, obviously. Don't want to see um, uh, violence. Don't want to see certain types of action uh, taken. Stability, again, doesn't mean that things don't change, but again, that they change in a way that is consensual uh, and that don't lead to, to violence. So stability is not stagnation. We don't have the luxury of, of stagnating. We've got to, for example, galvanize or come together to meet all sorts of uh, new challenges. We need to build new institutions. We need new arrangements. So in a funny sort of way, 
total st- uh, you know, stagnation is not the answer. But if we understand stability, having a dynamic dimension to it, then we can have dynamic stability go hand in hand uh, with peace. So do you think in today's world we have anything that we would call stability? Yes, I think if uh, one looked at uh, the relations between the major powers, uh, I would say they're not totally stable. On the other hand, compared to a lot of history, we don't have great power conflict. So there is there is that. We have uh, a pretty much broad acceptance, not absolute, of the lines on the map that there's a recognition of the, the significance of sovereignty, that it ought not to be changed with force. Every once in a while, there's an exception to that. But people pretty much accept the, the principle and pretty much accept uh, the borders. At, you know, if Mr. Rand and Mr. McNally were joining our conversation and we had a map, I think there's pretty wide acceptance of, of those uh, things. So I'd say we have some stability in the world. Now, we have terrorists who clearly reject stability. We have certain movements that want to have countries of their own. We have significant jockeying and rivalry between the United States and Russia, the United States and uh, China. We have threats to stability. And I would argue the, uh, say, the growth of the North Korean uh, nuclear and missile capabilities. Iran is at times a threat to stability. What's happening in Venezuela is obviously a threat to stability. What's so interesting about this period of history some of the most significant threats to stability are not relations between states, but are situations within states. And there I'd say places like Syria, uh, Yemen, Libya, Venezuela. So, you know, is this a stable world in certain ways, but in many ways it's, uh, it, it, it's anything but. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So in terms of understanding um, how history can help guide our future decision-making. One of the um, debates that's going on now, and you refer to it somewhat, is um, the Thucydides trap, as it's sometimes referred to. Uh, Graham Allison uh, at the Belfer Center at Harvard uh, published a book about whether or not uh, the Thucydides trap is uh, uh, something that's going to produce war in the future. And so I was wondering if you could describe this so-called trap and how it might apply to our world uh, in the near future. Yeah, the argument comes out of uh, ancient Greece, the relations between Athens and Sparta, and the the basic concept of uh, what the great historian and philosopher Thucydides was writing is the friction that that inevitably results between the great power of the day and the the would-be rising power. And that as one rises, the existing power inevitably resents it, it causes friction, and sooner or later, it, the two come to blows, that there's not enough room on the stage for both. And Graham Allison suggested that that's a metaphor for, or in some ways a harbinger for the U.S.-Chinese relationship, obviously the United States being the great power of the day and China being the, the rising power. 
and there's not room enough for for both. Either China will not be content with what it can get, or the United States will not be tolerant of China's rise, and sooner or later will will push back. That's the idea. I do not. Uh, well, put this way, it's a possibility, of course. Is it a inevitability? Anything but. That's why you have foreign policy. That's why you have uh, statecraft. Now, this relationship has uh, considerable friction in it. I get it. The pandemic is exacerbating the friction in some ways. But by no means do I think this is a trap or inevitability. Uh, the United States and China still have quite intimate or profound economic relations. We've cooperated to a limited degree, say, on dealing with the North Korean uh, challenge. We've, uh, I, would, I see no reason why we could not expand our cooperation on something like climate change. Uh, we have our disagreements, but each side is pretty respectful of the others, we, whether it's dealing with Taiwan or dealing with navigational issues in the South China Sea. So I think this is totally a, a manageable proposition, and I hope I'm right. It's a very different 21st century, depending upon how this plays out. These are the two most powerful and influential countries of this era. And if the two do end up in a cold war or worse yet, a hot war, uh, it is, a, I believe, a disaster, not just for them, but for the, for the century, because it means all of their energies or most of their energies will go into competition rather than in tackling what I believe are the defining issues of this era, again, from pandemics to climate change, to proliferation, to terrorism and the like. So to me is in some ways the greatest foreign policy challenge for these two countries, which is how to avoid allowing their competition to go get out of hand. Or another way that I write about it is how did these two countries accept the reality that there will be elements of competition in their relationship uh, that can't be avoided. But how do they make sure that these competitive areas do not get in the way of other areas of, of cooperation? So how, how can the United States and China say be competitive, but set a ceiling on the competition, say in the South China Sea or over Taiwan, and still allow them perhaps to cooperate uh, over North Korea or on climate change? And that to me is the, the foreign policy challenge for both. And I, I don't think it's an insurmountable challenge. Well, one of the um, apparent or potential challenges to the concept of the Westphalian sovereign system is uh, R2P, as it's often referred to in shorthand, it's responsibility to protect. So uh, can you explain uh, that? You deal with it in the book. Uh, explain that and how it might uh, be a challenge in some fashion. At least I'm putting words into your mouth that it might be a challenge to the Westphalian system. And uh, I'm curious if you think that's true. It's an important issue. Uh, you know, we discussed before how sovereignty is a building block of international order. The idea is that states accept the freedom of other states to pretty much do as they please with, within their own territory. But then in the 20th century and the 21st century, we've had a number of genocides. And when you finally had a Dennis genocide in Rwanda, uh, in Africa, some 20 odd years ago, the world afterwards said, this is, this is unacceptable. We can't simply stand by and sovereignty cannot give governments the right to carry out massacres against people in their territories. So the, the implicit in this is the idea that sovereignty, yes, it enjoys all sorts of rights and privileges, but they're not absolute. 
And when governments either carry out massacres or allow them to happen on their territory, they forfeit some of the rights of, of sovereignty and they forfeit the right to be left alone to allow this to, to happen. And the idea of responsibility to protect is the world then said, I think the vote was 2005, if my vote, if my memory is correct in the, in the United Nations, the world essentially declared and put, put everyone on notice that if terrible things happen within your territory, we, the world, have the responsibility to protect innocent people, and we are prepared to act on it. And that's the notion. So it's, it sends the message that sovereignty is central to order, but it can't be an absolute if it's abused. This is one way it's abused. The United States announced a similar thing when it basically said, if you allow your territory to be used to support or terrorists, if you allow them to train there, get stronger there, you should not assume that your territory, uh, the sovereign protections of territory are sacrosanct. We will come in and get you. And that's what the United States did in Afghanistan after 9-11. So we live in a world where sovereignty is still a central building block. But I think what we are also seeing is it's being chipped away at. You mentioned the responsibility to protect principle. There was the condoning or supporting terrorism idea. So what we're trying to do is get it right. And there's a constant conversation going on about how does one how does one balance this? Let me give you another example, which has come up recently. Turns out the Amazon rainforest, in Brazil, largely in Brazil, is critical to global efforts to push back against climate change. The government of Brazil is allowing the rainforest to be systematically destroyed through fire, cutting, and so forth. So the question is, yes, it's within their territory. On one level, you might say they have the sovereign right to do whatever they want to do vis-a-vis uh, -vis the rainforest, but the rest of us will pay an enormous price because of the contributions this will make to accelerating global warming. So one of the questions is, should we discourage Brazil from allowing the rainforest to be destroyed, for example? Should they be sanctioned uh, economically? Should, should there be boycotts against Brazilian goods in order to get this government in Brazil to fulfill its responsibilities in the realm of climate change? This is a, a growing debate. And again, it's a, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a really good example of how we want to keep what's best about sovereignty. We do not want to go back to a world of several hundred years ago where we were constantly intervening in one another's territory. That would be a war, a world of nonstop war. On the other hand, we live in such an interconnected world. How do we, how do we balance those, those two concerns? It's, it's one of the reasons uh, this field is, is so interesting because there are, there are really, uh, interesting, important trade-offs to, to be made. Well, it seems to me, though, that we've always had uh, the impetus from different nations, both militarily powerful, but also economically powerful, often one and the same. But uh, we've had nations that have wanted to influence the politics internally of other nations. Uh, so the boycotts and divestment efforts uh, against South Africa uh, are a notable example long before uh, responsibility to protect became something formal in terms of the United Nations. It seems to me, though, that uh, this this recent, relatively recent move is a, an effort to formalize, um, achieve some degree of consensus that uh, efforts to intervene. And it seems to me uh, you suggested it's it's in the form of sanctions, but 
Uh, often it, it was described as a plea really for what we think of as military intervention, right? Well, it can be. And several years ago in, in Libya, that's exactly what happened. That you had all sorts of civil violence against the Gaddafi regime in, in Libya and the United States and Europe essentially invoked the concept of responsibility protect, use military force, and went beyond actually the idea of the doctrine. They weren't they intervened not just to protect uh, a population that they thought was endangered from the central government, but they went on to remove the central government. And two things happened as a result. One is that both Russia and China said we will never support this idea of responsibility to protect again. Clearly, it has been abused here. And its purpose in Libya was not simply to protect uh, innocents for potential massacre, but was to bring about uh, political change. And second of all, Libya is a mess. Uh, a very flawed authority was removed, and now we have a terribly flawed situation of civil war. So I think the idea has been somewhat discredited. I don't think you're going to see a lot of uh, invocations of the responsibility to protect uh, principle. Indeed, I'm not even sure the UN would pass it if it were to be put to uh, to uh, to a, a vote again. And I also think it shows the limitations of military force. It's uh, to use military force to affect the trajectory of, of the of countries, their societies, their political systems, to to use military force to bring about changes of regime is probably the most difficult and risky thing you can do in, in, in foreign policy. One is it can be very difficult to oust a regime, even more difficult, though. And we learned this the hard way in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're learning it in Libya is to put something better and stable in its place. So in Syria, the efforts to get rid of the regime failed. But in these other places like Iraq, Afghanistan, and now uh, Libya, what's proven even more difficult is to put something better uh, in its place. So it, to me, it shows the limitations of military force, the, the risks of using it in particular for these kinds of missions. And uh, you know, the danger in the United States is that people will read all what hear what I just said and they'll say you're right. And the getting back to what we were talking about at the early early part of the conversation, it'll lead them to an isolationist position. I would say the right reaction is not isolationism, but it might be to rethink how we use this particular tool of foreign policy. And maybe we ought to put a greater emphasis on diplomacy or various forms of aid or uh, military training and so forth that we, we can't overuse the military instrument as a, a as a tool of foreign policy, and particularly, I would argue, for trying to re-engineer the politics of other of other societies. It's, it's in many cases, simply too ambitious. But ultimately, it seems to me that the caution that seems to be warranted in reference to the experience in Libya, maybe Afghanistan, uh, U.S. involvement in Iraq after 2003, all of these examples, at the same time, all they, uh, although they caution uh, adventurism, they also, uh, alas, suggest that things like Rwanda, uh, Bosnia, uh, uh, the Rohingya, uh, the Uyghurs, all of these problems, they're going to continue to exist because ultimately the tools that we have are very limited in terms of achieving the results we want. 
I'm afraid you're right. Uh, I think this was true before the pandemic and the world has essentially accepted what Russia did in Ukraine. The world has pretty much allowed terrible things to happen in Yemen, in, in, in Syria, in, in Venezuela. A lot of these situations are just, uh, the cost of intervention would be enormous. Uh, a friend of mine uh, used to be the uh, chancellor at UCLA. I think he was president of Harvard University. He used to have three boxes on his desk, in, out, and too hard. And all these problems fit squarely in that third, that 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 third box. So it's one thing to debate the principle of these interventions of responsibility to protect and the like. It's something else to say, okay, we're now going to do it because doing it can involve large numbers of soldiers staying in areas for a long time, a lot of and a lot of financial and human uh, human costs. And I think in many cases the world has looked the Look the other way. We've come a, a long ways from where we were at the time of uh, of Rwanda, and so rather than never again, it seems to be that these things these things seem to be happening uh, periodically. And I think the pandemic will reinforce that because what it's going to do is distract us, and it's going to absorb so many of our resources, psychologically, politically, economically, what have you. And there's going to be a real sense that all of us have to fix what's been broken within our societies. Uh, one of the things that worries me is that there's going to be more scope for bad things to happen in the world because the United States and so many other countries are going to understandably be inward focused. Uh, there was a, a recent article by Walter Russell Mead where he uh, noted that one of the lessons to be taken from the response to this pandemic of the COVID-19 or the coronavirus uh, will be taken by bad actors, which is to show that uh, just how powerful and influential a bioweapon could be. And so, in other words, uh, injecting even greater prospective instability. Quite possibly. Uh, there's been a long-term concern about what's called grand terrorism. And traditionally, it was more about nuclear weapons or nuclear materials. Someone would get a hold of a nuclear bomb or somebody would get a hold of a lot of uh, radioactive material and put conventional explosives with it, create a so-called dirty bomb. That's been a longstanding fear of people in the business, and that continues to be a danger. But you're right. So, But you're, yeah, just, okay. just, but you're right. There could now be the possibility of... Uh, biological uh, terrorism uh, and people, I expect, yes, people are taking notes that these are not battlefield weapons. What these are are mass weapons against an entire society and an economy. And it's, it's quite possible. And again, one of the lessons we should take from this right now, we're struggling with COVID-19, but one day there'll be a COVID-20 and there'll be a COVID-21. And this could be naturally occurring, could be an accident in a lab, or it could be, as you say, because of uh, because of terrorism. Or another threat is the emergence of bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. And again, those can happen naturally, or somebody could potentially engineer them. So what we need to do is build in the world all sorts of early warning uh, capabilities, stronger public health systems, and we as a society need to say, how do we make ourselves more resilient? because these things may occur naturally, or there may be terrorists who, or foreign governments who bring them to bear. So what sort of equipment do we need? What sort of protocols 
do we need? How do we essentially make ourselves, we, can make our, we cannot make ourselves invulnerable, but how do we make ourselves less vulnerable? And that's, a, that's an important conversation to have. Uh, one of your uh, sections, you list a variety of issues and you discuss them each at length, uh, globalization, terrorism, uh, nuclear proliferation, climate change, migration, uh, health, um, which of course looks very prophetic at the moment, and uh, currency, monetary developments, etc. Um, this is a long list, and of course we don't have time to discuss them all. But which of uh, which on that list do you think are uh, the really uh, key issues that will require a new understanding of how international relations works? The answer you're not going to like is all of them are important. Uh, collect, let me take one step back, Ian, uh, which is that collectively, what I think this tells us is that for the 21st century, this is the category of issues that will most define our lives. In previous issues, I, would, uh, I think it's fair to say, and history would suggest that the defining issue was, say, a Germany or a Japan or a Soviet Union. And there are some today who would say it's China. I think those who are saying it's China today are wrong. I actually think it's this class of global issues that will define the 21st century more than anything else. Well, pandemics are an obvious one uh, that, that should keep us up at night. We're having a taste of it now. Uh, climate change, I would think, is profound in its ability to totally reshape the quality of life. You, you could have hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who have to move. Entire nations like Bangladesh could be threatened. We saw the fires in California or Australia. Well, imagine if those become, uh, as they will, more, 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 more commonplace. We've seen uh, more frequent, severe storms. So if I had to choose a, a single issue, I would probably choose uh, climate change to, to focus on. But again, virtually everything in that list, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, uh, terrorism. Every one of those things should should give us grounds for concern. Now, some of those issues, by the way, are also positive. Globalization is not only bad. Cyber, yes, it, it can be a problem. It can be used by terrorists. It can be used by the Russians to interfere with our elections. But also think about how the digital world has transformed our lives and all the positives it has added. Trade, uh, again, has in many ways enhanced our, our, our lives. The functioning of the world economy obviously has enhanced our lives. So one should not think of globalization as only bad. The, and one way to think about the challenge is how do, how do we take the positive aspects, protect them, even expand them, and how do we push back against the negative aspects of globalization? I think that's probably a useful way to, to, to divide it. In your concluding section, you talk about the uh, different ways that uh, countries interact and what are some of the important elements in terms of how countries plan their interactions or go about them. And you note that this is basically no longer what in the 1990s was discussed or described as a unipolar world with the, the U.S. victory in the Cold War and the disintegration of the Soviet Union, but rather we've really entered a de facto multipolar world. Um, are you uh, sanguine or um, pessimistic about the, the condition that we're in? Because it seems to me that you basically end the book, alas, uh, uh, on a, a rather downbeat note <laughs> in terms of what you're predicting for the future. I am. Uh, I'm not sanguine. I am 
concerned. Uh, and we are moving towards a world of multiple centers of power. You think about it, it's not just the United States, it's China, Russia, still have Europe. And in various aspects of international life, you have different actors. When it comes to nuclear weapons, you have nine countries. Iran may one day want to be a uh, 10. You've got all sorts of terrorist groups. And what, a lot, what that tells you is the players that count are not just nation uh, states. When it comes to managing, say, the digital space, well, we have to think about Facebook and Google and, and Amazon and company, Apple and companies like uh, that in the area of public health. Uh, the Gates Foundation is a is a central player, as are all these companies that are working on antivirals and and and, and vaccines. So we 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 you know we have that uh, that that reality. And my point is simply that in a world of not just dynamism, but so many entities with with power, organizing this, harnessing this is going to be extraordinarily uh, difficult. I think what's made it more difficult is not simply the emergence of all these entities. And as we said at the beginning, you have the old the old sets of issues, geopolitical, great power rivalry, and now you have all these global challenges, but also you have the United States that is uh, doing a lot less. Not because we have to do less, but because we've chosen to do uh, less. And what worries me is the world won't simply organize itself without the the United States. Uh, we may not be sufficient, we're not sufficient, but we are necessary. And I worry about uh, how things will play out. Now, the it sounds negative, I am concerned, but uh, I also wanna make it clear that uh, no, nothing I've said here is inevitable. Uh, I don't believe, you know, I've worked now, I've been lucky, I've worked for four presidents. I worked for Jimmy Carter, for Ronald Reagan, and both Presidents Bush. I've worked at the Pentagon, I've worked at the State Department, I've worked at the White House. And my principal takeaway from these experiences is how individuals matter. There's, there's very little that's baked into the cake. Um, what we decide to do and how we decide to do it can have tremendous impact on the future course of events and ultimately on what we call history. So yes, I'm concerned about what's going on in the world. Yes, I'm concerned about where some of the arrows are pointing, but uh, in no way do I feel that bad things are, are inevitable. We were extremely successful, extraordinarily successful as a country after the most horrific events of the century after World War II. And you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book was to give people some background and a sense of uh, uh, to sort of show that what governments do and don't do can have real impact. So there's, there's very little that's inevitable about the future. And what I'm hoping is the United States uh, in some ways goes back to a traditional uh, role in the world. Again, not unilaterally acting, but, but leading, understanding that what happens in the world matters, understanding that we have a, a central and essential role to, to play. And I, I, so I still think the, the possibility of, of progress is, is out there, but it's not just going to happen by itself. You did manage to end this on a happy note. <laughs> <laughs> just when you doubted me. So the book is entitled The World, A Brief Introduction, and we've been joined today by its author, Dr. Richard Haas. Dr. Haas, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the, the conversation.